at the Alan Turing Institute, our mission is to make great leaps in data science and artificial intelligence research in order to change the world for the better. This podcast explores the research, ideas and technologies behind a data revolution with the people responsible for shaping our future. Welcome to the Turing Podcast. Welcome back to the Cheering Podcast. We have a very special episode. And first of all, we start with a very special co-host. Hi, Anika. Welcome to the podcast for the first time. Hi, V. Thank you for having me. Really looking forward to this and excited to be a part of the team today. And we're very, very excited to have you. Um, would you like to introduce our guest of today? Of course. Um, today, I have the pleasure of welcoming back Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee to the Allen Cheering Institute. Um, Nicole Tenerly is a speaker, author, and technology innovator, as well as a senior fellow in governance studies and director of the Center of Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institute in Washington, D.C. She is an expert on the intersection of race, wealth, and technology within the context of civic engagement, criminal justice, and economic development. Wow, this, this sounds great. And we're so excited to have you, Nicole. Welcome. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you. <laughs> Um, so let's start with the basics, right? Let's start with you telling us a little bit about yourself. How did you get into policy? How did you find yourself having this career path? So that's a long question <laughs> with a long answer. <laughs> First and foremost, I want to say thank you to the Turing Institute for having me. I feel like I must come to the UK, take residence there just so I can sit with this fabulous team of researchers. Um, as it was mentioned, I'm at the Brookings Institution and we're a global think tank headquartered in Washington, D.C. And I came to the Brookings Institution after a long long history working in tech policy. Um, and before that, I actually was what I call a digital evangelist, working in local communities, just sort of advancing how technology was going to transform the, the way they live, they learn, they earn. Uh, started my career when I was a graduate student at Northwestern in Chicago, and the rest is history. And I share that first and foremost for people who may be considering a t career in tech policy, that there's no linear pathway. I mean, I'm a sociologist in training. My PhD is in sociology. I'm not a computer scientist. Not a data scientist, but I believe in people. And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, I've been able to advance in my career and just in my research pursuits. My policy work really intersects race, technology, and social justice. And so I've spent the majority of my life advocating on behalf of underserved, marginalized communities, but also sort of flipping that glass half full to ensure that they have economic, uh, social, educational opportunities that come as a result of this burgeoning internet. Um, and so without dating myself, <laughs> this has been my pathway. You can actually read about it. I have a new book coming out in January 2022, um, which is oh, on the... very uh, exciting. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited. I cannot tell you because writing a book is hard and it's just harder when there's a whole lot of things going on in the world. But uh, my hope is that this book will tell you a little bit more about me, but it's about the U.S. digital divide. And we'll talk about it, I guess, a little later. But the goal is that it's actually, you know, walks people through how I got here so that it even brings more credibility to the stories that I tell. Amazing. Thank you. You. What steps can we take as data scientists and professionals to mitigate some of the biases within algorithms? So this is a great question. Um Partly because my research portfolio at the Brookings Institution delves into three areas. One I've already spoken about, which is the digital divide. The second one are just generic um, and general uh, policy issues like privacy, spectrum, 5G, etc. And this third bullet is really near and dear to my heart, and that's algorithmic bias. And before I answer your question, Anika, let me just share with people, like, how did a sociologist get involved with algorithmic bias, right? Well, I believe that there are sociological implications that happen as a result of being of people being connected. 
And so algorithmic bias sort of came my way when I realized about four or five years ago that there were problems with big data. In fact, I was uh, at a, an event at the Federal Trade Commission uh, here in the States, and the then chief technology officer, Dr. Latanya Sweeney, who is at Harvard, runs her computer science program, gave this demo. And she essentially told the audience to watch the screen for like 30 seconds. And we did. And it was a screen of a black fraternity who was having its 100th anniversary celebration. So it was all like, you know, where the parties were going to be, what lectures were happening, etc. Well, we watched that screen for 30 seconds, all right. And what basically popped up were get your arrest record free and credit card offerings for the highest interest um, cards that, you know, were on the marketplace at that time. That was five years ago. And if you follow her work, what she was basically describing is that ad delivery services really targeted microsurveil certain populations. And as a result, you actually see these discriminatory ads. That turned a light bulb on for me that there was some work that needed to be done in the space. And I joined, I think, a distinguished group of women, women of color in particular, who are working in the space that are really looking at how we unpack algorithmic bias. So to your question, you know, one of the things that I think I contribute to the space is one, we look at bias at Brookings as when similarly situated people, places, and objects receive both differential treatment or disparate impact. And when I say differential treatment, I like different genres of movies and my partner <laughs> that shows up in the positioning algorithms that Netflix continuously feeds me, uh, which keeps me on my couch most Saturdays. <laughs> but um, but when you realize that I not only like those movies and the genre of them may suggest that I might be a, a black woman. And then you look at other traits, other composite profiles or composite aspects of my profile, uh, the fact that I I might have children, the fact that I might buy dark skinned colored dolls, the fact that I might actually look at certain ethnic magazines. What I find with bias is that's when it becomes disparate impact, because just like I saw five years ago, we begin to see targeted predatory ads, higher interest credit card offerings, and for some people, rejections of those vehicles that can improve quality of life. So for me, this is a really serious concern. And in light of just some recent conversations we've had here in the States on uh, companies that is very big called Facebook, the question becomes, you know, just how intimate and how opaque these models are and how embedded and precise algorithms are to actually facilitate discrimination with even, you know, greater uh, faculty because of the fact that they know more about us than we know about ourselves. So that's the research that I do now is how do you make algorithms fair, lawful, less biased, inclusive, you know, and everything else in between. So we ensure that the technology itself does not encroach upon people's civil and human rights. I was just thinking how incredible it is that this discrimination shows up and it's implicit and it's intrinsic and we can't escape it because either you reject all the cookies forever and you have to go by hand and reject all of those or you get this discrimination which is incredibly unfair. I mean, I think that's why to Anika's question, it's important for data scientists and other professionals to recognize that bias exists. This is not a conversation that we need to go and prove. It is there. And it's there because we are, are as individuals, we're biased too, right? Uh, we're biased by our values, assumptions, and norms that we bring to the table. And the sales uh, stereotypes that we have about society, you know, whether we like... I, vanilla ice cream or chocolate ice cream or whether we're explicitly or unconsciously uh, biased or racist, they actually come to the table in these models. <laughs> and I think that's something that I want to see data scientists sort of take on just this idea that you start out with models that have that potential for fallibility just simply because we're bringing ourselves to the table. Once you recognize that, it makes it so much easier to have a conversation <laughs> with a sociologist um, who is constantly seeing how these issues play out. But you're right. It's, it's just intrinsically baked in the model. And these algorithms are not static because they go into a context in which they have the potential to further perpetuate systemic inequalities. And I think that's the key thing, too. These are not just models in the lab. These are models that actually have the implication, can implicate people based on their economic, social, uh, educational standing within societies. Absolutely. I have a question. Do you find yourself having to prove, like you said, that the bias exists? Because um, 
it, it seems obvious that it exists. We well, you know all the time. I mean, the paper that I wrote a couple years ago at Brookings on algorithmic bias detection and mitigation was done with an engineer and a lawyer. And I tell people constantly that that was the longest paper I ever wrote, but it was the best paper I ever wrote. Because if you put three people from different disciplines in the room, you're just not getting anywhere, right? Because the uh, sociologist <laughs> is going to tell the engineer, no, 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 we need more social science data. And the engineer is going to say, take that out. You know, math is discreet. And the poor lawyer is going to figure out a way to negotiate between the two of you. Um, but at the end of the day, that paper actually informed me to the fact that we have to have these conversations. And as a sociologist, I'm obviously not going to be able to provide the amount of noise or blind algorithms so that they do not see the type of uh, different uh, inputs that go into that model. And obviously, as a policymaker as well, I'm not going to be able to say that the model called X. This is not claiming malfeasance on the part of developers. I'm not sitting there telling developers in, in any way that you're discriminatory racist. What I'm saying to you is that we have to go into these models recognizing that whatever we do in terms of technical cadence has to prepare for bias because there is the potential that the interaction of that you know variable that used to be maybe a hundred variables on an individual which is now amounting to millions of variables on one person could actually interact differently with something uh, that's what I consider to be uh, author Michael Kearns out of Penn University of Pennsylvania talks about the inferential economy that I think comes with this whole idea that on the internet we're not static individuals because all of these variables provide again a composite profile of who we are and so I think it's really important for developers to come in with that idea in mind so that and, and then when you have that idea deployed honestly have tests that have you go back and audit and evaluate whether or not the algorithm has gone wrong <laughs> and then you know I would say finally figure out ways to engage with other disciplines to determine whether or not you're on the right tracks particularly when you're dealing with like financial services, education, healthcare, because these are sensitive use cases. Thank you so much. This is really interesting. Um, you mentioned your book. So I guess we now want to know what influenced you to write it um, and what's the title and also how can we, you know, UK listeners get our hands to in the copy of the book, please? <laughs> well, you know, I'm hoping, look, I'm be shameless. Adrian, <laughs> to the Turing Institute for a book talk. Listen, this book is accumulation of 20 plus years of experience. As I mentioned before, I got into this space pretty much like as an advocate. I was uh, in school at Northwestern as a graduate student, and I was trying to figure out ways to just waste some time while I was, you know, collecting data, doing research reports, etc. And I stumbled upon a public housing development, which is federally assisted in some way. And they had a small computer lab of three 86 computers. And I don't know if anybody out there remembers what a 386 computer looks like, but it doesn't look like the computers that we have now. Uh, and we didn't even have smartphones at that time. I think we, most of us were carrying around pagers, they called them at the time. But uh, again, I'm not trying to date myself, but that's the era in which I started. And that experience allowed me to see that we have just very deep systemic equalities, inequalities here in the United States. We have a tale of two cities, the haves and the have nots, those that have the privilege of access to communications infrastructure and those who do not. And as we have seen technology evolve in the last 20 years, where there is just absolutely nothing that you can do in this country that is not in some way enabled by high speed broadband networks, it's become very clear. And this global pandemic has shed light on this, that being connected to the internet really matters. And so this book really started before the pandemic. It was my way as a sociologist of sort of taking the experiences that I had as a grad student till now and explaining to policymakers who are often divorced of the realities of real people that these challenges of the digital divide are, exist. Well, it taught me a lot. I went to seven cities across the United States. I uh, took off my normal, you know, office gear and put on my running shoes and, and, you know, a jacket and walked around and spoke to people in the street. And I met some amazing people from farmers to low income, um, single mothers to folks that own beauty and barbershops to young girls that had to walk to the local McDonald's to get access to broadband just to do their homework. Uh, I went to rural communities, Southern white communities, uh, met people in tribal lands. And to me, that experience really shed light that we have broken the social contract 
when it comes to digital access in this country. The digital divide didn't start during the pandemic. It's It's been in the making for over 20 years. And so the book is entitled Digitally Invisible, How the Internet is Creating the New Underclass. And it's this conversation on, you know, where we have come in the years that the digital divide was birthed um, by my friend Larry Irving, you know, early 2000s, and how the digital divide is no longer binary. It's not a conversation between those who are online and those who are not. It's a conversa- conversation of survival. It's, you know, if you don't have a smartphone, internet, and a credit card, you're not getting a ride-sharing service or a house-sharing service. If you're not connected to the internet, you're one of those 50 million school-age kids, uh, 15 to 16 million of them exactly in the United States that did not have access to broadband to get online to do schooling during the pandemic. And so for me, these are serious issues that should renew our concern for why this is not a pandemic issue. This is an issue that if we want to get this right, then we need to bring everybody up. And the reason that I I call uh, the new underclass is that this is not just, you know, people of color or poor people or older people, the people who normally make the box. These are like rural farmers who are struggling to actually, you know, move into not precision agriculture, but just order supplies so that they can maintain their livelihoods. So I tell their stories as part of the book. I'm really excited about it. It's taken me a long time because the pandemic offered more content, but also I want to make sure that I honor their stories because they share them with me over the course of a year uh, in my data collection. So hopefully I'll be back to talk more about it, you know, but my goal is to, you know, write this blueprint for what I think we in the United States should be doing that should also impress upon our friends across the world who are constantly trying to figure out how to solve the billion dollar question, the billion people question of how do you connect people to online resources. In your book, you talk about the real life consequences of the digital divide. Um, The phrase itself is somewhat sticky and can mean a number of different things. So perhaps we should clarify what is exactly, well, what exactly do you mean by the digital divide and how can we close this gap? Yeah, so that's interesting, right? Because the digital divide, like I've mentioned, it tends to be who's online, who's not online, who has a device, who doesn't have a device. And I think that that's a very constricting way to look at digital access. I mean, right now, I tell people, even with digital literacy, we're not talking about putting people in programs. This is intuitive. If you didn't know how to use technology before the pandemic, you are now seeing your doctors online. If you didn't have any idea of how you were going to work via, you know, video streaming applications like Zoom and others, you are doing it right now. What the pandemic did is sort of thrust us into a disruption that we've seen pretty expeditiously on the technology side in terms of the disruption of transportation and other areas. The only difference is, is that we've seen people who are already disconnected from the internet get further and further disconnected. And so, Anika, to your question, it's not for me about the digital divide. It's about the divide of a tale of two cities between the haves and the have-nots. My title, Digitally Invisible, is actually um, encouraged by Ralph Ellison's The Invisible Man, a book I read in high school, which basically said that every time this protagonist did something to sort of appear within the audience that he was trying to reach, nobody saw him. Um, And that is why I'm writing this book, because I think we believe across the world that we're all intuitively connected to the internet, and we're not. Of course, there are some countries that have better access than others. I commonly go to China uh, for work. You know, prior to the pandemic, I was there, and i commonly visit this uh, marketplace uh, where I attend a large conference and I speak no Chinese, but I always visit for the last six years, this one woman who has her own little shop in the open market. And she always pulls out her smartphone and asks me if I have a QR code (laughs) so that I can pay, (laughs) which I tell her I'm not on WeChat. So I don't have a QR code. I will have to pay in your currency. But I, I tell people in the book, I write about that experience because here in the United States, we would never see that happen. When you are disconnected from the society, you live in rural America, as one of the respondents from my book said, it's like the ice cream truck coming up to your community and they only have two flavors, vanilla and chocolate. There's nothing else. And so this type of dependency that we now see on digital access, in my opinion, really should be encouraging and facilitating policies that provide first-class digital citizenship to people. We have problems with misinformation. We have problems with algorithmic bias, all as byproducts of a burgeoning digital economy. But let me tell you something. If you're not connected to the internet, 
internet, there's a high likelihood that you're also not getting a ride sharing service in your community or you're being passed over when it comes to the types of discounts that are offered to people who are connected. You're calling an agent on a telephone who does not exist. And so to me, there are costs to actually being disconnected that make this conversation around the digital divide less consumptive and much more related to the productive economy. Oof, that is so interesting. And there's so much to to go on about. Um, but you mentioned being digitally invisible, right? So what would you say to people that actually fear technology? Because we've seen a lot of misinformation and you see people fearing technology, um, you know, feel, fearing surveillance because we're all being, you know, watched right now, etc. Um, and those people would prefer to be digitally invisible. So what would you tell them? I love that. And so that's like the, the <laughs> that is the title of my second book, Digitally Invisible, <laughs> The Existential Threats of Algorithms, right? <laughs> I mean, look, this is another thing that's happening concurrently with us trying to solve this access problem, you know, whether it's deployment of broadband, the adoption of broadband, or the education around broadband, that we have the surveillance economy that essentially has not given up, right? Um, black populations have been historically surveilled, starting with the Black Power Movement, Martin Luther King and the FBI files. And here we now have technology that surveils. And for many people of color, that's not a new thing, but it's actually more harmful because of the preciseness that technology can actually discriminate you against you on, right? Uh, before you had to you know, be in a certain place and somebody had to identify you. Now we have facial recognition technologies, drone surveillance, heat maps, uh, predictive analytics that actually are enabled by autonomous systems that allow for people to identify you. And sometimes they're very inaccurate. Sometimes they identify the wrong person, like the gentleman in Detroit that was detained for six hours in a police department simply because the facial recognition thought he actually committed the crime. This is happening all too often. And the surveillance really goes counter, I think, to the civil rights that many populations have fought for. And it's only telling, particularly as this podcast recognizes the importance of Black history, that we have to talk about that, that what that surveillance capital does to mimic and mirror the type of oppression that people are already subjected to. But at the same time, what it does is sort of diminish the general purpose of technology that should be available and equitable for all. And so with that being the case, we have big problems. We have problems when it comes to technical accuracy. We have problems when it comes to transparency. We have problems when it comes to, you know, the outcomes that result from systems that still cannot identify darker skin uh, complexions from lighter skin complexions and facial recognition recognition uh, technologies. And we have problems when you start to even talk about natural language processing technologies and the extent to which you can actually figure out if that voice actually belongs to this person. To me, those are the next stage of challenges that we have to take on the same way that we're taking on the digital divide. But the problem is, you know, and I'll just say this quite frankly, is we don't have people who are in the space that represent the lived experiences of the impacted groups. And so the lack of representation is really one of the telling um, eye openers about this space. How can you have people develop algorithms for black people if they're not black? How can you have men develop pain threshold algorithms for women? <laughs> um, how can you have people who are able to sort of think through healthcare algorithms that help the disabled? We got to break that logjam and ensure that there's workforce diversity and idea diversity that allows us to build more robust products. But we also need, I think, the type of policy prescriptions that ensure that data scientists who are listening to me understand the existing civil and human rights. You cannot build models that perpetuate discrimination. And if you do, you run the risk as a developer of creating a reputational uh, uh, risk to your company or to your project simply because it was wrong. And we see too many cases that land up on the front page of newspapers because people didn't think about that, nor did they ask for help from people who may have been able to sort of steer the question in the right way versus opening it up to a lot of concepts. I, I just want to say that when we put this into context about all of the um, discrimination that we talked about, it just shows how the fact that the, there's um, not access to these technologies makes people not go into these careers, which, which propagates the lack of representativity in 
further along. So this is a systemic problem. Oh, no, I, I agree. I love the way that you've placed it because to be that person, you got to see that person. One of my favorite uh, books and movies is Hidden Figures, which actually talks about the fact that the woman who was very um, critical to NASA's ultimate objective to get a person into space was a black woman. But yet she was a hidden figure. We really did not hear about her until about five or six years ago when Will Smith decided to make the movie. And so I think those kinds of things become very imperative to sort of changing the equation. We've always talked about the lack of diversity in STEM careers. I am not a data scientist. In fact, I did not do very well in computer science, moving that darn cow, you know, an inch uh, as part of my required courses in undergrad. But I'm a sociologist who can help bring a socio-technical perspective, uh, a body of settled research on why the use of name or photos can be discriminatory as proxies. I'm able to help determine whether or not there are eligibility metrics that we need to be more more careful of. I think you've got to have sort of a potpourri of actors at the table when you're designing. And if you don't know, like I'm, I'm working on this, like this, like big, hairy, audacious goal one day to sort of do a reading list just for students to uh, look into that can help temper their work. Because I, like many other people who listen to this, I'm a wonk. I love technology, but I just want to ensure that we do technology responsibly and we're not excluding populations who will ultimately ultimately become the product of the technology in question. Thank you. The following question I have is how do we advance digital equity and inclusion specifically for historically disadvantaged groups? But I feel like we've kind of touched on quite a few um, points within that topic. Um, In terms of policy, how do I would probably change it to maybe see how do we get these policies put into place and what can we do to kind of advance some of the suggestions that you've put forward um, previously? Well, I love that question in terms of what's the role of policy, because we've talked a lot about the role of technologists. We've talked a lot about the role of civil society organizations. But let's talk about, you know, what policymakers could actually do. Uh, Here in the United States, we're in the midst of passing potentially the biggest infrastructure bill uh, since the uh, New Deal was created by former President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And I wrote something at Brookings on what I call the Tech New Deal, which is to position technology as one of the critical infrastructures that we have here in the States. And it appears that that's happening. I've been in this space a long time. I tell people the recent activities in the White House under this new administration make me feel like I'm special at the prom. When I was growing up, I used to stand up against the wall nobody wanted to talk to me. Now, you know, I feel like, as my daughter said, I have peaked um, and I'm able to um, be in the space where people are paying attention to the digital divide. What does that mean? We need a tech new deal. We need a deal that not only creates broadband infrastructure, but we need a new deal that also creates jobs. Franklin Delano Roosevelt actually created jobs with the new deal. People became the folks that built the dams and bridges of this country, and that's happened across the world when it comes to infrastructure. The fact that we do not have uh, representation in these industries speaks volumes because these are really good paying jobs that can support uh, families and livable wages. So as part of my Tech New Deal, I'm actually pushing for workforce. How do we integrate not just the deployment of the technology, but the creation of jobs? That's a policy metric. And guess what? If we have people in the workforce space that are not credentialed to go immediately into this space, why not creating a create a civil service corps? where people who want to learn what it's like to pull fiber for 5G or do cloud-based customer service support or simply want to sign people up for vaccinations on laptops or iPads can be part of a you know public uh, loan forgiveness program or be part of a digital service core where they get some type of stipend or savers account. And the third thing I put in this tech new deal is that we need to focus on community. What are the roles of our anchor institutions? We need to expand that definition. What the pandemic showed us, it's just not about, you know, broadband providers that actually provide the services. There were schools that overnight became technologists, right? Because they had to figure out how to do new remote learning. There were churches that became anchor institutions for access in front of their stoop, right? There were fast food restaurants that actually served in parking lots for digital access. In my view, we need to look at those lessons from the pandemic and transform those digital parking lots into digital parks. Let's make them as policymakers into open 
spaces of access. We need to take federally assisted housing, and I know you have this in the UK, right, and make sure that there are open Wi-Fi hotspots that exist for residents who live in public housing. We need to ensure that there's money that's going into adoption activities, as well as um, the the innovation sector of diverse founders who came up with just fantastic ideas during this pandemic on delivery services and clothing products and how to purchase hair. You name it. The internet enabled folks at a time when economic recovery was not in our mind. It wasn't in the forefront. And now it is. And so I'm really thinking a tech new deal for me is sort of taking all those components of, and placing those disparate post-it notes in one frame so we can develop some metrics and watch us grow. We should not be sitting here watching one, two, three, four, five companies grow. We should actually have the technology again move from a consumptive. I'm just the consumer. I stand in line. I get my technology. I go and do the things that I want to do. I put my apps on there to productive. I build these networks because they are the future of our critical infrastructure assets. That is really cool. I'm just thinking about everyone knows the five companies that grew over the pandemic as like names popping into the mind of everyone at this point. I always like laugh when people say there are five companies that grew. I'm like, every company is a technology company. I mean, my (laughs) bank is like, take a picture of your check. You know, there's all every company is now a technology company. The challenge is accelerated digitization forced companies become technological. And if you didn't have that bandwidth, you're not here. That's the problem, right? that these companies were forced to close. I was in a neighborhood just the other day that I had not visited for quite some time. It's It hurts me to see thriving economic areas now with, you know, uh, for rent, for sale signs, simply because they could not adapt to this disruptive technology. And I think that's really important. That's important to the digital divide conversation. That's important to, in the use of AI to actually migrate from inline to online platforms. And it's important in terms of the implications it has on human capital. Um, I don't know about you guys in the UK, but we have a huge worker shortage right now here in the United States, uh, particularly for in-person stores or in-person establishments, per se, uh, institutions like schools that require teachers to report. I I like to call them like these non-remote jobs are not able to secure workers. And I wonder why. So I'll be curious. I don't do this work, but my colleagues do uh, at the Brookings Institution. But I'd be curious to see just how many of these jobs migrated online. But this is this is cool, because I think this segues really nice into the next question that we had for you. Like we talked about, you know, the data and the algorithms and the policymakers and stuff. But as we touched on earlier, it's the data itself that has the biases. And the data is created by all of us, right? Because we are the product that companies and (laughs) uh, algorithms read. So what can we, the listeners, not data scientists, not, you know, anyone that has a specific job, whatever walk of life we've come from and whatever industry we work on, what can we make to, what can we do to make a positive change? You know, that is a great question. Again, given the timely events that have happened recently with the uh, Facebook whistleblower, it's only appropriate that we sort of think about how do you take those conversations that happen in Senate hearings and bring that to everyday people so they understand, you know, just what is happening when they are actually interacting with these new emerging models. I think it's really hard. I mean, Part of me wants to relate this to the evolving communications infrastructure. There was a point when we um, had rotary phones. There was a point when we actually read, you know, newspaper that spelled like ink. There was a point that, you know, we were more like civic journalists, you know, looking at the validity, validity, excuse me, and accuracy of the content in which we consumed. And here we are today. Uh, most of our content is online. Most of our content is probably debatable because it may not also be true. And most of our content is in real time. There are instances where as consumers that has enabled us. The uh, murder of George Floyd was publicized and, you know, really just had a domino effect globally as many people took to the streets to uncover the fact that black lives didn't matter. And there were things that we had to do to sort of redress that injustice. Those for me are the moments in which I'm particularly proud of the internet as a sociologist who studied social movements to know that people can actually engage in collective action via online platforms that are productive and stand up for democracy and freedom. Same token, 
We have times where that same tool can promote hate speech and incite insurrections that uh, we didn't know were happening in the same playground in which we all are playing. I tell folks when it comes to the algorithmic economy, I often feel like a little kid on a playground. When I was growing up, it was recess and the teacher would send us out to the monkey bars, the swings, the sandbox, the slide. Some of us went to the slide, some of us went to the sandbox, some of us went to the monkey bars. And at some point we just sort of rotated, right? And said, I wanna get on the swing, it's my turn. We waited in line just to get on the swing. Well, the algorithmic economy doesn't do that. We don't move out of our filter bubbles. We don't move out of our affinity groups. So the white supremacists sit on the swings. The Black Lives Matter people sit in sandbox. The cyclists sit somewhere on the monkey bars, right? And nobody gets up to actually recognize just how connected we are. So with that being the case, I think consumers have to understand that this is the internet ecology in which we live. And there are things that we as consumers make trade-offs on. We like getting uh, purchasing recommendations, movie recommendations, uh, dating profile recommendations. Um, thank God I'm not in that space anymore. <laughs> but when we look at those innocuous uh, search results, we know that they're not going to do the type of harm that would stop people from participating in society. But the challenge is we kind of don't know when those harms do actually exist because the internet is so opaque. And so no one knows that I might be seeing a set of, you know, credit card offerings that are higher interest versus somebody else, or I might have access to some kind of like layaway program online based on my composite profile than my friend. We don't know that because we haven't done the relevant test to determine whether or not, again, as we define bias at Brookings, similarly situated people, places, and objects receive different treatment or have disparate impact. And so I think consumers need to know that it's more than just about the cookies. So when my mother calls me and says, why is this information following me from my social media to my email to this? I, every time I turn around, I search for tents and now all I see are tents in my search queries and everything. Well, the cookies have followed you because you actually like the cookies. You're insatiably uh, addicted to the cookies. But guess what? The GDPR is now letting us know that those cookies exist and we can opt into whether or not we want to comply with them. We need that same type of privacy construct, you know, that is universal here in the United States. We don't have one that allows us to, as consumers, be empowered to know what's happening with our data. But we also need that right to let folks know when we want to delete that data or take it with us. I'm not one that actually is really like a big fan of the valuation conversation. Like if you want my photo, you better pay me 25 cents. Cause that's about how much it's worth. Right? Because guess what? If I'm hungry and I need to feed my kids, I might sell you a whole lot of photos that might exploit my, my humanity. With that being the case, we have to find ways to dignify these experiences. Just say this last thing, and, and I'm on my soapbox for a minute as a parent. What is, you know, has been disturbing for me the last 24 hours is that the algorithms themselves, and again, this is in no um, slap in the face to any one company, because I think we're, we're talking about one company, but algorithms are in every company um, and, and even in the public sector and government. But what, what, really has attuned to me be based on your question is I have a daughter that is very much part of the social media universe. In fact, I'm constantly saying as a parent, get off that phone, get off that app. And I think what really appeared to me to your question is my lack of agency over these issues. My, my inability to change the equation um, and to provide an alternative to what my child could be doing if they were not really connected to these online apps and experiences. And I struggle with that because I was one of those parents where my child was online for most of the school year, but at the same token, I was mad, but I couldn't be that mad because she now knows how to work independently, collaboratively, and use tools that I never even imagined learning at 14 years old. And so I think for consumers, we have to make sure we're educated and we have to empower our own agency around these things. And we need to take that and make sure that we are sort of the keepers of our households when it comes to the technology accessing our data and that of our families. So I'm sorry, I'm like a black Baptist preacher on these issues because my mind is always thinking about these things or anybody's preacher for that matter. My pastor, is, <laughs> my pastor goes way before beyond his time when he's preaching. But, you know, for me, these are like personal issues because they actually really matter more than ever before. Um, I was going to say that uh, that's absolutely right. I have um, 
a teenage um, niece, goddaughter as well. So I, I think that all of the algorithms to suggest videos on, on TikTok, we, we have no control over that. And we have, she might watch all of these random things um, that are definitely not age appropriate. Uh, <laughs> and then what can we do about that? You know, I was thinking, I was thinking the other day, because I'm working on some research now on algorithmic, um, an algorithmic energy star rating, sort of like a labeling system uh, that would allow people to sort of understand the technical cadence, the public policy implications, as well as provide a consumer feedback loop. Hopefully I'll get this article done in the next 24 hours because it's going to go in a book. But, uh, you know, it's, it's been hard because I, my mind is still not settled on the direction in which I want to take the research. But as I've been thinking about this, maybe it's not a bad idea to think about the rating systems that we have in movies. You know, that G, PG-13, R, M, A, and think about the content that our kids are exposed to. It might help with the agency that I feel that I've lost as a parent because I'm not certain, you know, what my child is looking at and what the implications are in terms of the level of the content, particularly for young people. And I don't think we need to prescribe that to older people, but I think for young people, it may be particularly interesting to think about some type of rating system. Yeah. Just like video games has currently. Yes. That's what I was thinking that the other day, like, could we actually impose, hey, Turing folks, Turing folks, <laughs> rating system, if this is something of interest, email me. But, you know, I was thinking, like, could we actually do something? like that that actually mirrors other uh, types of infrastructure where we're trying to cut down and reduce some of the um, uh, deleterious effects. Just to, to say as well, um, we did touch on the fact that Black History Month currently in the UK, the month of October. Um, this has been celebrated in the UK for more than 30 years now. And it's um, a month, for those who do not know, it's a month um, that was originally founded to recognize the contribution that people love um, African, African-American, Caribbean, Black descent um, have made over several generations. Um, and as it is Black History Month, we'd love to know which uh, African-American or Black individual has inspired or influenced you. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, first and foremost, let me actually do a big shout out to uh, the folks who are celebrating Black History in the UK. I absolutely love London. Um, had the opportunity to go during Christmas and I've had the opportunity to go at other times and it is absolutely one of my favorite places to go. So I want to put that out there. Any opportunity I get to come there, I do take it. Um, and I'm sad because I haven't been there in a while. With that being the case, um, in the spirit of the UK, and I'll say this because it's a podcast and you can hold me to it. Obviously, my favorite uh, person of color uh, that I would like to shout out who has um, origins there is Idris Elba. <laughs> 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 Hopefully my partner will not be listening to this, but it kind of looks like him, you know. There were some standards set. Um and all of the other let me let me clean this up, all the other great actors of color, the black actors in, in the UK that come to the United States and just do incredible roles and incredible um film and television, you know, shout out to them because we haven't talked about it here. We've primarily talked about broadband access, but media diversity also matters. And having images on screen actually speak to those hidden figures and give people hope that think that their stories are not narrated appropriately um, in our in our communication streams. Um, it's so hard for me to think about uh, role models because, and honestly, I'm a person who was post-60s. In fact, my dissertation was on the impact of the civil rights movement on people like myself, whose parents were the beneficiaries of civil rights outputs. I didn't live through segregation per se, but my parents did um, and their parents did. And so my dissertation, when I completed it, was not on technology, but was on collective um, movement theory and collective social mobility. And what do you do with people of color who have no basis for uh, fundamental lived experiences in a country that alienated them. And what I found was people like myself, we found ways to live through the legacies of Harriet Tubman and uh, Sojourner Truth, uh, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, and other leaders who suggest the story of resiliency. And so I would say that the leaders that I most admire are those that are resilient. I'm a sociologist because of W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, I had the opportunity to go to Ghana and see his dissertation and 
where he studied and read all his stuff. And that inspired me to want to make a difference. Technology, as I said, I sort of stumbled upon as I was volunteering during my residency on my PhD program at this place with those 386 computers. And that just, you know, that love of people led me to actually be a part of the Community Technology Center movement in my early years. But I, I, I share that there's no one role model that I can actually point to um, if I were to be politically correct, because she may actually listen as my mom and my dad, who both inspired all of us, my sisters and myself, to keep persevering. And I would say to anybody that's listening that is of color and a woman, they taught me to persevere and not sit outside the room, but to walk into the door proudly bearing the name that I carry from them. And I tell my kids the same thing. I remind them that they are not eternally, because that was my maiden, formerly married name, but they're elite which is their birth name, and they carries with them a lot of weight. And so um, it's important that we celebrate these months, but we understand that these months started from moments that are now decades. And those decades are not decades of only struggle, but they're decades of the type of enlightenment that we can bring on some current issues that are affecting people of color. Um, you know, when George Floyd died, I remember doing an interview for a television station and I cried. The lady said, what are you crying for? I said, well, you know, I'm crying because, you know, this black man died, you know, the hands of police. But I said, I'm crying because what would he have said if he knew how impactful his life was in his death? And why was he not able to live that way, you know, while he was here on this earth? And those are the problems that we need to solve. And we need to ensure that technology does not embolden us to actually create more George Floyds, not necessarily the physical lynching of black men, but more stories of devastation and the lack of hope and without optimizing these technologies to be more inclusive and diverse, both in their design and, and, and in their execution. Well, that's powerful. Thank you so much. I want to say hi to your parents if they're listening. I know. Hi, mom. <laughs> yeah, I lost my I lost my dad a couple like five years ago. It's so hard to believe it's been like five years. But he was one of like four hundred architects, black architects across the country in the United States. And there's still like less than four hundred architects, black architects um, in the United States. But he always inspired us to just keep pers persevering. So thank you for that because I was just telling somebody the other day, um, a person who knows you, like your dad would be. So so proud if he knew all the stuff that you were doing and I was like yeah he would and he'd be better than my mom because he was like I'm a daddy's girl and he used to call me my mom on the other hand I sort of get pushed to the side with my other siblings when it comes to things that I write about or podcast so I will definitely make sure she hears this because she always thinks I don't talk about her which is why she doesn't have to listen um I know this is really interesting and I just I just like would like to um, give another example that it's very not talked about, but actually one of the most in biology, one of the most commonly human cells is from an African American uh, woman. And most of the research on cancer and everything was done on these cells. And it's not talked about. It's again, a, he a hidden figure, even though the name of the cell line is the initials of um, her name was Henrietta Lacks and the cells are the HeLa cells, but it's a hidden figure in a completely different field. It's not technology. I mean, I bring her up oftentimes when, you know, here in the United States, we had a big distrust problem when it came to the vaccination, given the historical discrimination that has happened in the health sciences when it comes to testing and deployment of new health technologies, right? Whether it was the Tuskegee experiment with syphilis or it was Henrietta Lacks, who died a poor woman, um, despite the contribution that she's made to cancer research. For me, and this kind of goes again to the algorithms. It's about disclosure. It's about transparency. It's about understanding the unintended consequences. It's about potentially creating on the policy side, regulatory safe harbors and sandboxes. I mean, we can't solve technology that discriminates against people of color if they're not included in the data sets that we're training these models off of, right? So you cannot say, oh, we want facial recognition to be better in identifying black women, but their black women are not in the data sets. So you got to find ways to work with policymakers to make us feel safe as you use our data for the good. And I think part of this conversation of public interest technology is trying to do that, right? The technologies that, that Henrietta Lacks contributed to, because think about it, what started out as a pinch or culture has turned into much more sophisticated tech, uh, healthcare 
uh, uh, curation. Look at what's happened with the COVID vaccine. We use artificial intelligence technologies to actually cultivate that. The question becomes, are the people who are, have become the product aware and transparent to what these systems can do and disclosed of what they cannot do? And to me, it's the same. I love the way you bring that up. And I appreciate you calling out her name because we have to call out the names of people who we think are those hidden figures oftentimes. To me, it is those historical experiences that should help us get better and help us become more interdisciplinary and help us become more mindful that we're all in this together as, as an academic community, as an academic community, as well as a community of practitioners. If we got that right. I think there are a lot of different things that we could solve, you know, like misidentification of people of color as primates and photoshopping black faces against European faces. Like we wouldn't have to deal with any of that, right? If we recognize that one bias exists, two, that in the absence of being in the data set, you are the data set because your data's absence is going to actually make it less robust and then, you know, create certain predictions. And three, that we've got to have more engineers and data scientists who have people like me, sociologists, as your friends. <laughs> Make sure we're at your dinner table and your happy hour. Because I, I trust me, it's going to be a great conversation in the end, but it will make the research much more robust in this space. Especially with a happy hour, everyone after a couple of drinks. <laughs> Definitely. I love it. I want to say it's really been a pleasure speaking to you. Um, I watched your video on policy, uh, policy fights back, the cheering lecture you held here. So um, it's really a pleasure to have you back here. Um, and it was a really inspirational talk. Um, I'm a big fan, as you can tell. <laughs> and I hope that you can come to the office when you do visit London. Um, eventually when everything's um you know back to normal the new normal um thank you so much for coming on um if you'd like to share uh, how can people reach you how can we get in touch what's your social media handles how can we keep up, keep up to date with you well, no, first and foremost, I have enjoyed this. Uh, for people who are listening, as you notice, it is all women and it is always great to be among my sisters when we're talking about these issues. So I appreciate that. Uh, if you want to keep in touch with me, I'm on Twitter. I'm actually on social media, so I do not have a blind social media presence. Um, so at Dr. Turner Lee, at Dr. Turner Lee is my Twitter handle. You can find me on Facebook on Nicole Turner Lee. You can find me on LinkedIn, Nicole Turner Lee. Um, I'm Nicole Turner Lee for a reason. My mother just did not want me to give up my maiden name when I was finishing my PhD. So that's why I have this three word name. Uh, but with that being the case, you can find me there and please have me back when my book comes out, hopefully in person next year. Would love to visit this, your wonderful city um, and to just be around some inspiring scholars. And for those of you that are interested in the Brookings Institution, the Center for Technology Innovation has a weekly uh, newsletter of new content that comes out on technology issues and a bi-weekly podcast podcast too. So we'll have to have you guys on, which is Tech Tank, which deals with uh, very complicated technology and policy issues and sort of breaks it down from uh, bits to bites so people can actually uh, take a taste of them and see what's happening on our side of the world. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. If you have an interesting topic you'd like featured on the show, a guest recommendation or a burning question, email podcast at cheering.ac.uk. The Turing Podcast is hosted by Ed Cowstry, B. Costa Gomez and Joe Dungate and produced by Dan Whitfield for the Alan Turing Institute. Music for the podcast was provided by Jam and Sun. You can check out his latest releases at jamandsun.bandcamp.com.